Well, good morning, Four Corners. My name is Ben. I'm so glad you're here for the second week of our Men in the Manger, Men at the Manger series. Men in the Manger, that would be interesting. Uh, men at the Manger. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the wise men. In fact, we're actually going to go a little bit broader than that. We're going to talk about the king's men. The wise men served as advisors to the king, to the kings. That, all the kings of the ancient Near East and the Far East had advisors that sat around their table, talking to them, advising them. These wise men were, as you might suggest, wise. That's how they got their seat at the table. They were able to give them some good counsel, some wise advice, and help these kings lead. In just a moment, we're going to jump into their stories. But first, got to tell you how excited we are that you're here because we're approaching the most for most of our, uh, us around here, most of our leadership team, the staff, the volunteers, the most exciting time of the year, where we're going to see more people than ever throughout the year walk into the doors of this building and ultimately hear the message of Jesus, the good news of the gospel, on Christmas Eve Eve. And I hope you're getting ready for that. Uh, this year, we're anticipating record crowds uh, like last year. And so in order to get ready for that, we're asking you to jump online and reserve some tickets. They're completely free to you. It costs you about a minute of your time is really all that it costs you. And what that does for those of us that are getting ready for our guests, for our company that we're going to have, it allows us to try to anticipate the crowd for the service. That helps children's ministry. That helps the room adjustments in here. So you have a choice of 7 p.m. or 9 p.m. We're asking you to jump online at our website, fourcornerschurch.com. And just click the link there that says Christmas Eve Eve, and it'll take you right to that site where you can get your free tickets for that night and get enough for you, your guests, that you're going to invite if you don't want to have them jump online or have them jump online and reserve their own. And let, let, let's just um, comment on, on this for a second. Let's say you forget to do that. Can you come? Of course you can. Go ahead and come. Or let's say you sign up for 9 p.m., but you're going to come 7 p.m. because something happened. Of course you can do that. It's not about limiting people, it's about being as prepared as we can and ultimately making sure that we honor uh, all of our guests that are coming and all the other things that we need to do to get ready for that. So if you could help us do that, it's the first time as a church we've had to do that. I suspect because we're a growing church, we're going to have to do that a little more frequently and it's probably better for all of us to just get in the mood on things like Christmas and Easter to do that, all right? So let's talk a little bit about, about the wise men, these advisors to kings. Kings are a big part of the Christmas story. It's a big deal to think about kings and kingdoms. Because the whole reason Jesus came was to establish a kingdom on this earth that the Bible describes this way, it would never end. It would be a kingdom where perfect peace would reign. Where justice would come to every person equally. Where there would be equal access to the seats of power. And at the same time, power would never be abused as it worked its way down through the ranks. That Jesus would be that king of kings, the highest king. He would be the king who sits on the throne, whose kingdom would never end. And that kingdom would outlast all other kingdoms. Kings are central to the story of Christmas. And, and, and all the regalia around Jesus was somewhat belied by his humble birth in the manger. Nobody yet thought, from a natural sense, that that baby born and laid in that manger soon after his birth had behind him an entire dynasty of ruling. And not only behind him, but in front of him, a destiny of ruling. Except for a few wise people. And a couple shepherds who heard about it in the field, and Mary and Joseph a little bit as 
God revealed it to them, but most of the world at that point was oblivious to what was really going on. In this message series, what we're doing, and I'm trying to talk candidly and directly to men about some of the people who encountered Jesus there at his nativity, at his birth, and the impact it had on them. And from their stories, all of us who are men, in fact, all of us, because there's so much that overlaps between the genders here, all of us can learn a little bit about what Jesus coming to this earth means for us. But you can't get very far in the story without encountering all kinds of language around kings. In fact, long before Jesus was born, he really does come from a, a dynasty of rulers, both on Mary, his mother's side, and Joseph, his kind of like, you know, stepfather adopted, the dad who adopts him, you know, to raise him as his own. Mary and Joseph's side, both there, they fall directly from the line of David, who was the ultimate king in the Old Testament. And so there's this language about Jesus being born into the house of David, in the city of David, which is Bethlehem, and he would sit on the throne of his father, David, way back through the generations. And so when you open up Matthew's gospel right there in your New Testament, Matthew begins with the language leading up to Jesus being born in the lineage of David, the great king, the king who united all of Israel for the first time, served on that throne for about 34, 35 years, and left an incredibly powerful kingdom upon his death. So Matthew chapter 1 tells the story of all the people from the earliest days of Israel's history through David and then all the way up to Jesus. And I want to take you there as we begin our story today. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Here's what it says. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The word Messiah simply means the anointed one. And then we get that hint, the son of David who was ultimately the son of Abraham. And then the Bible says that Abraham was the father of Isaac. Now, we could go through a lot of names here, but I just want to skip down to verse 5 and on to verse 6. And Jesse, the father of King David. So from Abraham to Isaac, multiple generations, people like Salmon and Boaz and Obed, names that we don't talk about often, all the way down to Jesse, who maybe you've not heard of, but you've heard of the next guy in verse 6, all the way down to King David. And then the Bible says that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And that's where we're going to stop in the genealogy today. And Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, who was also a king, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, if I were in kids' ministry today on the other side of that wall down there and we were telling the story of David, I would link David with, a very, uh, with another very famous person. I would tell them the story of David and Goliath, the giant and the little boy who with a slingshot and a stone fells the giant, grabs the giant's own sword, chops off his head. I probably wouldn't go into very gory detail. If they were middle school boys, I would go into all the gory detail I could. I would talk about how the guts and stuff ran out. I would, we would go very far in it, but I would talk about David and Goliath. But if you're an adult, you've been around church at all, you know that there's another significant relationship in David's life, that as an adult, we don't tell this story to kids in the same way. There's David and Goliath for kids, and there's David and Bathsheba, for adults. In fact, the story of David and Bathsheba in some ways eclipses 
David and Goliath. And David and Goliath, David is the grand hero. That event catapults him to the limelight and ultimately sets the stage for him becoming king. But when David's about 50 years old, and he's been ruling the kingdom for 20 years, David meets the other relationship that defines his life, Bathsheba. And here, in the middle of the Christmas story, as Matthew is getting ready to set up the story of the king of kings, who comes from the line of great kings, ultimately descended from the ultimate king of Israel, the biblical writers remind us a little bit about the history of that great king. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was the wife of Uriah. And everybody in Israel's history who's reading Matthew's story, Matthew writes primarily to a Jewish audience, who's reading Matthew's story as Matthew's getting ready in Matthew chapter 1 and then Matthew chapter 2 to tell the story of Jesus being born. Everybody knows at that moment in the genealogy, we've gone from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, all the way down to Obed, Jesse, and then David, and then Solomon. When they get to Solomon, the son of Uriah's wife, they know exactly what the story is about. It's a story about a king and his men. And what happens to them? It sets the backdrop for Christmas. I'm going to tell you some good news right here at the beginning. The good news for every man in this room, for every woman in this room, every boy, girl, who might hear this, everybody watching on the internet, is that right in the middle of the Christmas story, we are reminded at the very outset of the Christmas story about God's unending grace. Because David's story with Bathsheba that I'll tell you in just a moment in short form is a story about failure and betrayal. It's about murder. It's about lust. It's about broken promises. That is David's story. And it's interesting that in the Bible... One of the reasons I love God's word, and one of the reasons why I think God's word can be depended upon to give us all that we need to know about God is because when you come to these major players, the Bible never glosses over their history. The Bible never pretends as if its heroes are the kinds of heroes we tell in, in the fairy tale stories where heroes are purely heroes. They're flat characters with no real challenge. No, in the Bible, every single person with the exception of Jesus we're given a pretty accurate snapshot, not just of the things that they should be remembered for that are positive, but that other side of the story that defines their life, like in the case of David. So right in the middle of the Christmas story, we're reminded about a grace from God that is never-ending. We're also reminded that sin is a big deal to God. So what I want to do, men, for the next few minutes, I want to give you, I want you, rather, to give me permission to explore this king and the men around him, the king's men around him, their life, their interactions with you. And see if we can't glean a little bit of wisdom. And see if we can't follow this light from God's word right to that point at the manger. And my hope would be, that in light of what we're discussing, you would, with me, humble ourselves before the truth and ultimately before the God behind the truth. 
we go from Matthew chapter 1 back in our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11, we pick up the story of David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel chapter 11, the Bible says this in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Interesting little tidbit of history there. Spring was the time that kings went off to war. This was known. Because weather's nicer, it's not winter. <laughs> it's bad enough to fight a war, it's terrible to fight it in winter. All right? It's a time you go off to war because food is available. It, Things are growing again. Crops were harvested. There's food left over. Things are growing fresh again. You don't have to worry about feeding your family alone. There's usually a storage of crops. So you can go. And, and, and the, the other thing that's nice about the springtime, at least in the land of Israel, is, is you get some pretty good weather. You're not always trolloping through the mud. No, the spring was when people in that region went off to war. But who went off to war in, in the spring? Kings go off to war. But in this story, David sends out Joab, one of his mighty men, the Bible calls him, out with David's men and the whole Israelite army. But David stays behind. He remains in Jerusalem. He's isolated from his group. This would have been unusual. David was known as a man of war. David spilled all kinds of blood. David was made for war. He was trained for war. In fact, how he unified Israel was by fighting the bands of marauding groups all around the little perimeter of his village and then his city and then his region and then what becomes his country. David drove those forces to the extreme edges, all the way to the Mediterranean Sea and all the way across the Jordan River. David was great at war, but at this point in David's life, he's going to hang back. And then the Bible says, from that perspective, while all David's men and David's army and David's place is being fulfilled by somebody else, verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of his palace. From the roof, from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone out to find her. Next few lines are interesting. The man said, she is Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, these names may not mean anything to us. It's interesting. You probably never, I never forgot Bathsheba's name because Bathsheba took a bath. All right, that was easy. But the daughter of Eliam, Eliam is mentioned earlier in this story because Eliam is one of David's mighty men of valor. He's David's counsel. He's one of David's strong men. So when David sends for her and the person speaking to David, the man who David sends, says, look, that is Bathsheba. You know about her because she's the daughter of Eliam. He's like, oh, Eliam. And then not just that, it's Uriah. Uriah, who, who was not born is, you know, in our country, he was, he was a Hittite, but he's fully been brought in. In fact, Uriah also stands with Eliam as one of David's mighty men, one of his closest compadres. Somebody who stands beside David in the fight. These are not ordinary soldiers. These are high-ranking officials who sit at the king's table. Then verse 4, Then David sent the messenger to get her. And she came to him, and he slept with her. I don't know what imagery you have in your mind about that. 
some young 20, 30-something-year-old king just playing around like kings were prone to do. But at this point, David's 50 years old. He's been sitting on the throne for 20 years. He has several years left in his reign. Bathsheba's grandfather and father and husband were David's friends. And David says to one of the servant people, go find her. It's interesting. David is not only about to make a major mistake, but he's very foolish in the making of his mistake because slaves don't keep secrets. Slaves talk about what important people that they're serving are doing. So he sends a servant to go find out something. And of course, in that day, if you want a secret to get around you, tell a slave because they're going to talk about it. And in my mind, the Bible doesn't say this, but it seems to indicate that this is probably not a one-time deal. But probably multiple times over the next several nights, David calls to her. And whether she's willing or whether she gives in simply because he's the king, we don't really know. We're not told that. It appears later as if there seems to be a loving relationship between them. But at some point, she comes forward and says, I'm pregnant. Now, let's remember that this is Christmas. Interesting pregnancies are a part of the story of Christmas. Interesting background stories and just weird and challenging situations for families are a part of the Christmas story, men. Which means if you find yourself in an interesting family dynamic right now, you're not all that different than almost every major player at the manger, and everyone leading up to the manger. And David hears from Bathsheba that she's pregnant. He does what many men do. Now, man, here's where I'm going to start talking to you. David decides he's going to control the outcome. Mistake, bad decision, not a very helpful environment. We'll talk about all these things in a moment. But then the bad thing is, a, is eminent. It's coming upon him, and David at this point decides, as men are prone to do, he's going to control the outcome. He's going to rein it back in. Doesn't like where he thinks it's going to go, he's going to pull it back together. So he's going to control the outcome. In fact, we praise this quality in men. This autonomy. This ability to be in control. This ability to impact our environment, to anticipate what's coming and work it to where it needs to go. Not all bad things, but in this case, and we'll talk about why in a moment, in this case, David's control of the outcome isn't coming from a good heart. It's not coming from a position of a willingness to serve others. It's not coming from a position of let's get to the truth of the matter and then make good where there's been all kinds of bad. That's not what's happening at all. David is coming from a self-serving motivation to control the outcome, to control the impact on him, to massage the message. So, he calls for Uriah, who is busy fighting because it's springtime and in the springtime you go to war and Uriah sits with David at the seat of influence and Uriah is a good man you're going to discover. So Uriah is out fighting the battle, making sure that Israel's enemies are kept at bay. 
that we're gaining the lands that we need to have. While David's in the palace sleeping with Uriah's wife, David calls for Uriah and he says, look, I want to reward you. You're faithful. You're good. Here's what you're going to do. Why don't you go home? Take a little break. Wink, wink. Take a little break. So David goes back into his palace thinking, all right, I've got it. I've controlled the outcome. I've massaged the message. But then we read the story, and I encourage you to read 2 Samuel chapter 11, 12, and 13. It's a long story in the Bible. What we discover from Uriah is that Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah sleeps at the city gates because he's going to protect the city. He's going to protect his king. He's not off duty. His men are fighting. His brothers are fighting. He's going to stand with them. And even though the king has called him back, he's not going to shirk his responsibility. Uriah spends the night with the people who are paid to protect David. So, the next night, David calls Uriah. Since it didn't work, David finds out Uriah doesn't go home. And he's like, what am I going to do? How am I going to massage this message? Uriah won't go home and be a man with his wife. Here's what I'll do. David gets him drunk. Because he's going to control the outcome. He's got to control the outcome. He's got to make it be what he wants it to be. So he gets Uriah drunk and sends him home. And he discovers that even then Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah takes up a position of guard once again. But David's going to control the outcome here. He doesn't like where this is about to go. David's going to make it work. David's going to work the system. He's going to leverage everything he has. So David sends a note to Joab, his number one man. And he says, you need to put Uriah out front to kill him. And that's exactly what Joab does. He follows the, the ruling of his king and puts Uriah out front while the kings are battling in the regions around. Uriah is taken from home, put to the front lines. And of course, the inevitable ultimately happens. Not only Uriah, but a few dozen men die as David tries to control the outcome, to work the system, to protect himself, to cover his sin. And he thinks he's done. He thinks he's done. He thinks he's done it well. But people are already talking. The servants are talking. Joab, his right-hand man, is faithful. Joab's not going to confront him. Joab knows it all. That had to be awkward and strained, Joab knowing David's thing, Joab knowing he had no choice but to face the king's wrath or go along with the king's cover-up plan. That had to make that relationship awkward. And here his, David, believing that he has controlled the outcome, but the truth is he's gotten out of control. So the Lord sends somebody who's not a part of David's group somebody from the outside, to come speak to David. Now notice, up to this point, David has been isolated. He's been insulated. He's been inaccessible. Normally he would be with his buddies fighting. Normally he would take up his position doing his thing. But in the time when other kings go to war, David decided to hang back away from the other king's men. So David sends a prophet Somebody's going to speak some truth. That's what prophets do primarily. They don't tell the future. They speak truth. Sometimes that truth is a very present truth. Sometimes it's clarity about a past reality, which is going to happen here. Sometimes it is the truth about a future thing. But prophets in the Bible speak the truth. 
So Nathan, the prophet, comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse, or chapter 12, verse 1. We won't read it. But he tells David a story. There were two families. One was very wealthy. They had lots of sheep, lots of wealth, abundance of stuff. And there was another family that didn't have much. In fact, they only had one little lamb. And they loved that little lamb, and they treated that little lamb like a pet. It was really a part of the family. One day, the rich guy who had all this stuff decided he wanted to throw a party. And he needed a lamb to kill for his guests to eat. So, rather than taking one of his own, he goes to this family. Now, Nathan is telling this story to David, who had been a shepherd. And as he's telling this story, David's anger rises. The Bible says, in fact, David's anger burns at the injustice of the man who had it all, who takes from the people who had very little. David's anger burned against the man, and he says to Nathan, we should kill this man. Now, the law required a very simple resolution. We should have the rich man give a lamb back. In fact, give it twice fold. But David's ready to kill the guy. We should kill him. So Nathan then looks at David, and he points his finger at him, and he says, this story we're telling... That rich man, you're the man. It's you. You've embarrassed yourself. You're out of control. And at that moment, the thing that had been eluding David all along, the realization that in his isolation, in his aloneness, in his inaccessibility, when other people couldn't speak to him, And most of all, when David started trying to manage and control all the stuff around him, David, in that moment when Nathan points at him and says, you're the man, comes to face to face with what's really going on in his life. And David says this phrase, Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. And those of us that are reading the story go, no, duh, of course you did. How did you get this far in the process before you are able to acknowledge what's happened? Let me remind you, this is the backdrop of the story of Christmas. And when Matthew's telling this story in Matthew chapter 1, hundreds of years later, he reminds his readers that in the middle of the prep for Christmas, there's an ugliness. There's an ugliness in the middle of the Christmas story. David discovers that God forgives powerfully. But then he discovers another truth. He discovers that while God forgives thoroughly and fully, sometimes there are consequences that linger. And David robs himself of moral authority with his kids, and his household is going to go through hell. And there are other natural consequences as a result of this kind of betrayal that befall David's house And it's only a few years later that this sin grows in its impact, even though it's forgiven, and crumbles the entire kingdom, splits it. Civil war breaks out. David's own sons battling each other. When I read a story like this, what I'm reminded about is that it's very easy to not attend, if you're a man, matters of the heart. For men and women, boys and girls, life can be hard on the heart. And a life that's hard on the heart can make the heart hard. A hard heart isn't open to the soft truths. 
to the obvious things in front. Sometimes for men, that's because of busyness. Sometimes it's because of isolation. We don't have other people speaking into our life. Sometimes we have plenty of people around us, but we haven't been available to be spoken into. Sometimes it's them. Sometimes it's us. When I read the Christmas story, though, one of the things I'm most impacted by is that the wise men who show up come in group. They come in group. They travel together to bow their knee in front of the Savior who's been born King of kings and Lord of lords. There's something powerfully important and positive about men doing life with close friends who can speak into your life, who can encourage you, who can speak soft truths to help keep hearts soft. The world is full of outside influences that have power to disrupt the rhythm of our lives. Most of these are subtle. And sometimes they even appear necessary to prevent further disruptions. We place a boundary here. We quiet a voice here. We're not open to this thing here. But over time, those boundaries, those hurts, those hard things we experience begin to erode our heart's sensitivity. And then I have to be honest with you. Our culture isn't a friend here. In fact, we praise the autonomous man who doesn't need anyone or anything. And we encourage men to go to where you don't need anything. You're strong when you're alone and you're okay with it. But in the Bible, in a small way with the wise men who travel over hundreds of miles from the east, together they travel, together to make it to that place of worship. In the story of David, who isolates himself from his mighty men, his compadres, his counselors. In these stories, we're reminded of the power of men walking together, open-hearted, ready to listen, soft to the hard things of life. I think this is one of the hardest things about doing church in our modern culture. Because when we come to church, we often talk about matters of the heart to men where everywhere else there's almost a contradictory message being spoken. Men, if you attend to matters of the heart, the culture says, that somehow you're soft, you're not fully masculine. You're not fully arrived. You're needy. But biblically speaking, the Bible is clear on matters of the heart for men. It's clear, for instance, in Jeremiah that God says, through the prophet there who's speaking truth, guard your heart. That the heart is deceptive among all men. Be careful there. It's clear in the book of Proverbs, many of them written by David's son Solomon, who watched his father crash and burn. Be open to people speaking. A fool has no counselors, the proverb says. But wise men heed counsel. Major reason that I think we stop monitoring our hearts is that we were never really encouraged to do so as children. Instead, we're taught to monitor our behavior. If we behave properly, good things happen. 
regardless of what was really going on in our heart. So you feel this thing, you think this thing, stuff it down and do the right thing. There's some wisdom in that. But eventually, your heart, what's going on in here, is going to pop out. That was the thing with David. There was a seed of lust and loneliness in him. Maybe lust, maybe loneliness, I don't know. And because he's alone and nobody's there, and he's probably actually insulated himself fully from counsel, that seed has a chance to grow to full form. This is why God looks at men in the scripture and says to them, though the culture says to you autonomy is your highest goal, being able to be alone and being great with it, not needing anybody is your highest goal in culture, maybe in your own head. While our culture says that, the scripture says, men, you were made to be in community. You were made to have friends who could speak powerfully into your life. And in fact, you do yourself a disservice when you shut those voices out, either by physically separating yourselves or by being present but being unwilling. The Bible puts high value on men tending to matters of the heart. I think on my slide here, we avoid matters of the heart in spite of the fact that heart matters matter most. For your long-term development, for your long-term character development, for your long-term impact in this world, I think what you're going to have to do is what the wise men did in the story of the nativity. They traveled together. They traveled together and faced challenges. They traveled together and faced distance. They traveled together and together they ultimately got to the goal. Men, you need friends. You don't need acquaintances. You don't need people who will simply laugh at your jokes or cry with your sad stories. You need men in your life who will speak truth to you. And you have to be open to them open to them. Because, next slide, matters of the heart determine our relational satisfaction. David is walking headstrong into ruining his family. And he's completely cut off every source of input in his life. You need trusted people who are walking beside you and as a follower of Jesus, you need trusted people around you who are walking beside you who will ultimately help guide you to the manger. To bowing your knee before the Lord of lords and the King of kings. I need it too. Our culture won't tell you this. The rugged cowboy alone walking with his horse or riding his horse off alone into the sunset is the image. But not biblically speaking. David, if he had a chance to stand on this stage and warn you with his life, he would say, let me tell you where I made my first mistake. Verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11. Everybody else left and I stayed behind. Everybody else did the thing and I stayed behind. Uriah goes with them. And when he comes back and faces an opportunity, he finds integrity. David stays alone and when he faces his battle, he finds lust. And then he gives form to that lust. And then he begins to control and manipulate, and nobody around can speak to him. And it ruins him. Then one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself this Christmas is to make a commitment full and firm 
that beginning January 1 of 2015, you are going to do all you can to get in honest, accountable relationships with other men who are also following Jesus. If you don't, you stand to be like David. You may not see a woman bathing and then call for her. You may not have the power structures around you. You may, But you stand, I think, to be isolated and alone. And from that isolated and alone position to engage your own challenges by yourself. And that almost never goes well. God created us to be in community together. You see it with the shepherds, plural, in the field. You see it with the wise men together traveling. You see it with David's mighty men fighting at the time of kings. It's one of the reasons why men have to go to church. And yet, isn't it true, ladies, let me just be honest with you, isn't it true that in many churches we've made it so, so feminine that it actually creates barriers for men to connect? And in our discussions... They, they tend towards, let me, allow me just a little bit of latitude here to explore this with you for a second. In, in our discussions, in our small groups, they tend towards the kinds of things that, that maybe culturally speaking, at least women alone want to talk about or feel comfortable talking about. That's why, men, you're going to have to work extra hard because not only in the culture, but even in the church sometimes, it's hard to make yourself fully available to those kinds of relationships. And so around here, what we do is we ask you to get into trusted relationships. In fact, matters of the heart only get dealt with in trusted relationships. Or you can do what I do. You can pay a counselor who costs a lot of money to sit down and say, I'm going to let you speak to me about what's going on in my life. I have friends too. I can't tell you where I would be if I didn't have a group of people in my life who regularly look me in the eye and say, Ben, keep doing that, and it's going to put you in a bad place. Almost all the good stuff that happens in my life is the direct result of some other person, typically a man, speaking into my life. That's not only men can do that. It's just I'm a man and I'm more receptive. Typically a man speaking into my life. It was my pastors when I was a young kid, my youth leaders was people who got close to me in relationship. And sometimes I didn't want to hear what they had to say. But I needed it. Sometimes they were wrong. But the conversation, the dialogue that started helped me to grow. I've learned that as a man, I am not strong when I'm alone. I'm strong when I stand shoulder to shoulder with brothers in arm. Arm to arm walking towards some shared noble goal. I like the people who hold me accountable to things related to lust. And I get that phone call, unplanned, unscheduled, but regularly. Tell me what you're looking at. Tell me what you're thinking about. And it writes the course. I hold a lot of authority and power in this organization. And I have men both in and outside this church saying, Ben, how are you leveraging that to the good of God's kingdom and to the people around you? And it helps write the course. Because like you, I'm prone towards autonomy. I'm prone to isolated power. 
I don't like sometimes the social interactions, and it's easy for me then to cower alone and even feel good about myself as I do it. But matters of the heart can only be dealt with in trusted relationships. So men, let me make something perfectly clear to you this Christmas, that Jesus isn't after your good behavior. He doesn't ask you to step up and just do harder. What he's really after is your changed heart. And our hearts change better in community with other men. That's why I want to get you on a serving team here so that you can get to know other people who are also walking towards Jesus. That's why, man, I want to get you in small groups. In fact, I want you leading small groups, helping create that environment for other people. And this Christmas, I don't have an immediate so what for you other than to make a firm commitment that you, this year coming, will not walk life alone. And where there's isolation and independence, you will press into the biblical value of community. I don't want your story to have a footnote attached to it. And then there's David, who's the father of Solomon. We should, at that point in the Bible story, go right on to the next one, but we don't. We have to comment because it's such a big deal. Solomon, who is the son of Uriah's wife. I don't want that for you. And if you don't want that for yourself, the most powerful tool God gives you is to submit yourself to a community of brothers not the female co-worker who listens to your sob stories about how bad your family and marriage is. Not the person you're texting and hiding that from your wife. Not just throwing yourself into more work and providing more. A community of trusted brothers who you will let it down a little bit and speak honestly and then quit talking and open your ears and let them speak back. I need it. And you need it. And, and your families need it. David had no idea that those few decisions to isolate, to insulate, to not be in community and not be honest would not just lead to a sin that resulted in a child, it would literally lead to the disintegration of his family. And in the middle of the Christmas story, when God says what he wants to do is turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, that's what he says in Malachi. At, when he sends the Messiah, he's going to turn the heart of the fathers back to the children. In the middle of the Christmas story, we're reminded tangibly of the grace of God that continues to work even in broken families like David's. And the grace of God that speaks to us who haven't gone all the way yet, there yet. The grace of God given to us in warning form, don't go there. And your greatest tool is community of brothers and sisters. If you're a lady, men, if you're a man, men who will stand in front of you and speak truth, often serving the role of the prophet like Nathan to David. Nothing all that profound, but requires a significant amount of bravery in this culture to step up and listen. There's a whole series of things we could talk about, about who to listen and when to listen and when not to listen. And those are important discussions. In fact, the book of Proverbs is full of who to listen to and not to listen to. But it begins with you being willing to put yourself in community. So I don't know what your year's been like. But I know that next year can be different. I know that next year you can take the few weeks between now and the beginning of the year and you can make a hard and firm decision to be in community where other men have your permission to speak powerfully into your life. And you still have to make decisions about what they say. You're still going to be responsible for what you do with it. 
but you being in that place will put you in the best position to get what you really want because the scripture is clear. Man, if you don't attend to matters of the heart, it's going to go south for you. Ultimately, it's going to go south. So I want to ask you, why don't you join me and let's be wise men here and let's travel together and if you don't have a group of men around you, Take the next few weeks, think about why and what you can do differently. And when we come back together in the new year, I'm going to give you dozens of opportunities to connect with godly men who aren't perfect. They don't have it all together, but they're stepping forward with Christ. And together you guys can arrive at that place of kneeling in front of the Savior and the Lord of your life. So I want you to grab out your connect cards and let's take a few steps together as an entire congregation. I want to give you a chance right now to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want to give you a chance to uh, declare that the one born in the manger is also the risen king who has the authority and the right to rule your life. The Bible says, says that the way we get in a relationship with him is we just tell the truth about ourselves. It's an incredibly bold and courageous thing to do. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. And at Christmas time, like now, there's no better time to simply bow your knee, humble yourself a bit, and say, God, would you save me? Would you cover my sin? If you want to do that, check next step A and let us communicate with you about that. And when the offering buckets come by at the end of the service, put that card in there. And we'll send you some encouragement. You're not signing up for anything. We'll just send you some encouragement about what it means to be in a relationship with Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Here's next step B. Today I'm choosing to be baptized. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that would say, I've already committed my life to Christ. I just haven't gone public with it yet. Man, let let me just challenge you here. Be bold about this. Be bold about this. Go ahead and let folks know through the biblical way of going public with your faith, which is called baptism, let them know you're not ashamed to be with Christ. Here's next step C. I'm just not going right for it, okay? Men and ladies, ladies, you can join on here. I know I talked to men, but you can join on here. I have some heart matters that need my attention. Pray with me to be bold enough to reach out to walk with a fellow Jesus follower. Because at the end of the day, it's on you. I give you opportunity, but, but it's on you. Here's the next step, D. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that would say, all right, here's the deal, Ben. I've been offering Jesus some changes in my behavior, but I really haven't given my whole heart over. Like, I've been holding stuff back. But today, I'm going to choose to give him every part of my life. Here's the next step, E. Guys, I'm asking you specifically. Ladies, you do this well, so just Kudos. Anybody would say, I'll invest in three others by inviting them to join me at EV this Christmas. I know it's awkward to talk and invite other men. I got it. So just invite their families. Don't invite them. Just say, hey, bring your family. They'll come with. There are a hundred ways to kind of get around our cultural barriers, but what if you check the box and then together the staff and I and our prayer team prays for you over the next few days as you invite at least three people. There are invite cards in your, in your seat packet to help you do that. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that right in the middle of the Christmas story, you told the truth. The truth that we could experience grace through and the truth that we could experience change through. Now, Father, I pray that in this Christmas season, both men and women in this church would make a decision to walk next year in community with brothers and sisters, friends who are rallying around the manger. God, I pray for that man right now in this room who's struggling because of choices that have already been made. 
and he's wearing himself out trying to manage the outcome that he would find along with David that place of saying, I've sinned, I've blown it, I've made a mistake, I'm going to give it to God. Lord, I pray for those men who have yet to go that far, that you would surround them with people and they would be open to that, they would, they would seek that. And they would, in that community, walk humbly together towards what you have for them. God, I pray for those that are declaring, Jesus, be my Savior. Wash away my sins. I accept your death and resurrection to secure my relationship with God. And God, I pray for all those that are going to be here Christmas Eve Eve, that they'll be open to hearing and receiving what you have for them. I pray this in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy Son of God. Amen. Amen.